0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me the two authors of the book titled China and Latin America, Development Agency and Geopolitics, um, just out from Bloomsbury. And this book, as the title suggests, unlocks the current interactions between China and various countries in Latin America, but also situates them in historical context, in relation to each other, and really helps us understand the many ties between China and the multiple countries of Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, all sorts of places. Um, So I'm very pleased to have with me today, Dr. Chris Alden and Dr. Alvaro Mendez to tell us all about their book. Thank you both for being here.
2: Thank you for the invitation.
1: Before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could each introduce yourselves a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book and write it together. Álvaro, why don't you start us off?
2: Hi, uh, my name is Álvaro Mendes. I'm the director of the London School of Economics Global South Unit, and delighted to be here. I've been working on this topic for more than. 10, 15 years, and I've been working with Chris for almost more than two decades, a little bit over two decades. So that's why we've been writing on this topic together for a while.
0: In my case, um, I uh, have been working, as as Alvaro said, uh, together on this issue of China and the Global South, but my uh, focus had been China-Africa. He and I had been invited to to do some some uh, presentations and workshops across Latin America, uh, in, and in that context, uh, I had become more um, aware, for me, uh, aware of the con- of uh, Latin America as a whole as an actor involving China. Though I brought work on on Af- Africa to that. Um, And uh, we talked together during one of these trips and said, you know, we were going doing this frequently. I knew a bit about Brazil as well. Um, And uh, Alvaro and I decided to pool our expertise and uh, do this uh, book on, on China, Latin America.
1: A great that combination.
2: Correct, yeah, yeah. great combination, especially because we have done a lot of field work. I mean, the, the topic is right now in fashion, but we've been working on this, and this is the result of um, around six, seven years of field work in Latin America, including China as well, and other parts of the, of the world.
1: And that very much shows in the book, um, both in the breadth and the depth that you get into with the number of case studies and also tying it all together. So hopefully we can do a decent job of a sort of highlights tour of the main points of the book um, to showcase that. So I'd like to start sort of going vaguely chronologically. Um with the history of this, because uh, the both of you in the book make a really good point that we can't understand what's happening currently without understanding the older links between China and Latin America. So would you mind giving us sort of a brief run through of kind of those main points?
2: Chris, go ahead, I think.
0: Sure, I'll I'll jump in. I think that the situating, I agree, the situating, uh, the, the role of China... In, in Latin America in the historical context is absolutely crucial it's one and one of one of the most neglected uh, elements of, of any studies that we saw and that's why our start jumping off point was to look at that in greater detail one of the points that that uh, uh, comes across when you read the history is you realize how contemporary views across Latin America across the scholarship scholarly world, Suggest that China is quote unquote a new actor. Our findings was quite the opposite that China is a very old actor, in fact, formative actor when it comes to Latin America. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, the Spanish and Portuguese uh, conquistadors uh, were, were, we tend to forget when you're situated in Latin America that really their aim and, and drive was to get to that Asian market. That's what in the 14th, in the 15th, and, and 16th century was driving them to search for Latin America, that became the, the, uh, they did settle in, in the so-called new world, but they took that as a, as a jumping off point to, uh, continue trade, uh, very high levels of trade of resources, Latin American resources, in, in exchange for finished goods, for silk, for uh, porcelain, for, um, other spices and other things. And the parallel that 200 years of that extensive trade gave to uh, our understanding of the contemporary relationship, which in in so many ways still has echoes of that historical positioning between the three continents, between uh, Asia, Latin America, and then European markets in, in the final analysis. So that was very intriguing for us. Um, there, that was followed by uh, a, a period which really embedded the the communities that you will find today in contemporary Latin America, the, the communities of, of, of the, the um, uh, descendants of migrants from the 19th century who were brought as indentured servants and 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 that and uh, laborers to um, the plantations, to the um, mines. Uh, and ultimately to build the infrastructure of the newly independent states in in uh, the region uh, and small communities in Peru Mexico Argentina uh, Brazil other places cropped up at this stage so that carries us through the 19th century and the 20th century which I'll I'll turn over to Alvaro was you know Latin America was root was very much uh, uh, in fa- affected by the Cold War and in particular the Sino-Soviet dynamics.
2: Yes, uh, I think that's a very good um, summary of what uh, China's presence in in Latin America in in historical context. More more recently, since 1949, the first thing that uh, the PRC wanted was diplomatic recognition. So that was part of the relationship with with Latin America. The first encounter that they actually had with Latin America was in 1952. China has been very good at using cultural diplomacy to reach out to the global south. And in 1952, they organized a conference in Beijing called the Asia and the Pacific Regional Conference. And it was actually very important because it was sort of the first opportunity for many people from the region to attend this conference in China a total of 110 delegates from different countries. And now this is way before any of these countries in Latin America established diplomatic ties. Moving forward, China was a little bit shy about getting close to Latin America because they thought two things. Well, obviously, the distance, which is something that actually exists. But they thought we were closer to the U.S. than what we are. And that particular element started to change as they started seeing the, the, the behavior of the, of the U.S. in Latin America with uh, 1954, um, the Guatemala removal of uh, Marcovo Arbenz and the different instances in which the U.S. intervened in, in the Caribbean. The key element, I believe, was 1960, when Cuba uh, decided to establish diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China, September 1960. Then uh, just started uh, people getting more interested in in, in China. Che Guevara went to to Beijing in, in October 1960. And then after that, a number of things also all oriented to China getting diplomatic recognition. Another important point was 1971, when China was able to gain membership of the UN although many countries from the Global South voted to support that. Latin America was part of that, and that's an important element, how they obtained that, that support. And uh, this historical relationship became about then developing close ties. Um, then many countries established diplomatic ties with, with, with China. By 1979, when the U.S. established diplomatic ties with Beijing, 12 countries in the region already had diplomatic ties with, with China. So that's the context of that. And we continue seeing that uh, diplomatic uh, history is a very important element between China and Latin America. Just maybe important to mention that there are 33 countries in Latin America, 25 of which have diplomatic ties with Beijing. And of course, the other eight with Taiwan, which we will probably discuss later on as well. Can, can I
0: jump in with a, a final additional point on there and which is that uh, during the Cold War period, um, the, the as Beijing and, and Moscow split, uh, the kind the, the left within Latin America was itself divided. It had so in that respect that the the, the um, machinations of, of sino-Soviet uh, 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 problems were, were replicated. Within the political environments of each of these countries, and it, it carried on through that period and made the left a, a weaker uh, overall. Couldn't be as unified. Secondly, you had this kind of <clears throat> romanticism that uh, uh, members of the left had vis-a-vis uh, China. That that uh, it, its perhaps most clear representation was was the um, Sendoro Luminosa, the the shining path, uh, where. Guzman, who was the uh, was a, a member of the, the Peruvian Communist Party, um, had gone to China in 65 and 67 at the height of the Cultural Revolution, absolutely enamored about what he heard. <laughs> and he took the ideas, ideology and ideas, and, and launched, uh, brought it back uh, to, to Peru and, and, and eventually put it into practice, or as he understood it, in the highlands of, of Peru. And, and we had the insurgency that carried on uh, re- really quite, quite a, a bloody uh, uh, struggle uh, for uh, well into um, the early 90s. And so th- this kind of um, influence and the ideological overhang and the romanticism in some cases, ironically perhaps, was something that the Chinese e- experienced in s- like the Bolivarian republics, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, Bolivia. Ecuador, for instance, which, which responded to China's uh, economic engagement <clears throat> in the 1990s and, and early 2000s with, uh, you know, immediately identifying China with that radical past, which, of course, was not fully accurate to how China was responding, how China of that period was, but, but they still had that, that vision and that, that shared outlook.
2: And just to to add before we discuss other things, Chris is absolutely right. That cultural diplomacy, uh, people from the region visiting China, very important. Salvador Allende went to China in the 1950s. There are records um, that joined that Jacobo Arbenz, the former president of Guatemala, which was ousted uh, from power by with the help of the U.S., and also is reported to have been in China in the 1960s. So that very important um, element of connection was there from the very beginning, often through friendship groups. China has reached out to the Global South very often through these groups of friendship. And again, they continue doing so, which is remarkable. So this this has depth it's not a new a new relationship that people uh, believe is just being established a few years ago
1: and i think that's what's so important um and that's why i asked that as the first question right establishing this foundation that might be contrary to um what people think um but then allows the book to look at as you said alvaro the 33 different countries involved um in a way that make sense of sort of the links between them rather than just kind of each country having its own chapter, which would make for a long book. And I'm glad you didn't do that. Mm and not only do you not have uh, one chapter per country, but you also have uh, unifying kind of threads, I suppose, throughout the book. Um, and you talk about them in the introduction, which is very helpful. And I was wondering if you could discuss these now, the four main features that you investigate throughout the book and when looking at particular bilateral relationships.
0: Sure. We, we, uh, we, look at, um, we start this with a discussion of development. <clears throat> and how development is a, a crucial driver, certainly as uh, uh, of both countries, actually, um, economic and, and it's read through economic cooperation, gains, investment, trans- technology transfer and that sort of thing. And that shared outlook is really part of that glue that, that brings them together uh, and, and indeed the, the openness with which uh, um, uh, China experienced unexpectedly in some ways and and then and the the effort to uh, uh, to narrow their focus in the language of economic cooperation right because there was that careful treading into a region where the united states was perceived to have uh, dominant interests and no desire to trigger uh, u.s um, reactions in Overreactions or reactions in that way. So development was the was the the um, common project that brought uh, Chinese development finance, uh, technical expertise, um, and and in some cases investment, and matching up with uh, uh, underinvestment that had featured in in areas like sectors like the infrastructure. Um, so there was a the pulling together of those two. Um, and other other dimensions in other sectors as well. The other um, one is agency, and agency is is um, a recognition that this is a partnership that Latin American states and often elites, of course, we might, but beyond elites, uh, certainly to, reacted to, responded to the um, uh, uh, the Chinese opportunities or the threats, if you like. Opportunities, as I've just described them, economic, kind of new finance and the like, but threats are, were often uh, read very locally in terms of a project, a mining project that might uh, uh, spill over into environmental area, often into, into remote areas where indigenous communities were based. And that, that because of that, we see a, a kind of pressure brought to bear, sometimes protests, sometimes picked up in the parliaments or national assemblies. But this um, just capturing this dynamic, this pattern of of elite uh, um, agency in terms of reaching out to the Chinese or or, or finding points of contact between them, or sometimes rebuffing uh, in certain sectors, saying, "Look, we're not interested in in uh, uh, this particular you know involvement in the security domain," which happened time and time again across uh, uh, the, the countries of, of particularly of South America on the, on the coastal Pacific side. Um, but uh, this or agency as read through trade unions, communities, some small businesses or medium-sized businesses that saw in China uh, some kind of um, threat to their business, to their livelihoods, to to aspects of their community. and that give and take is, is really uh, the sort of expressions of agency that we saw patterns of agency that we saw. Um, across the, the continent. On geopolitics, I know Alvaro uh, has, has more uh, depth and, uh, and, and things to say on that subject.
2: Yeah, we, we try to touch a, a number of issues, uh, and as you can imagine, the diversity is quite you know massive, as you mentioned before, thirty three countries, thirty three different stories. So we try to to put them together in a way that will be clear to the reader, uh, touching issues of history, geopolitics, which we argue in the book were part of the the relationship from the very beginning, which we also argue they're part of the relationship to the, today because it involves more than one. Actors such as not just China but also the U.S. and, and other important actors that have had a, a, a relationship in 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 the region, and of course a story of trade and investment and cooperation, which goes back to what Chris said at the beginning: development. That's still a key. Element that that makes China a very attractive um, proposition. China's um, different projects, because of the lack of development in the region, we have one of the poorest infrastructure in, infrastructures in the entire world, and we are the region of the world that invests the, the, the least amount of GDP per capita per year on infrastructure. Therefore, you know uh, initiatives such as the. Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank, and, and of course, the Chinese flagship <laughs> Belt and Road Initiative, which doesn't have that much uh, to offer because we don't really know what it is. But 21 countries in the region out of those 25 that have diplomatic ties with uh, China have endorsed, endorsed, endorsed the plan. Yeah. So that's that's all these elements that we, we, we found. We tried to put together in a, in, a, in an edition that is not ideologically based miranda we're super critical of all the different actors uh, the us the europeans when they are involved china and latin american countries so that i think that gives you and i'm sure when you read it you saw that that balance in which we were very open and critical of all the different actors and that's very important but finally and you also mentioned that it's a story of diversity and to really understand the relationship with Latin America, you have to sort of look country by country. And we try to, to do that as much as possible to be able to do this in a, in a, in a, in a fairly, um, not so extensive edition uh, that people can read and access, uh, but it is important to remember that if you want to learn more about a particular uh, case, country, you need to be looking a little bit further than than, than simply looking at the region. Mm.
1: Very good points there. Um, that. V- of give, give a view of how you've managed to do the depth and breadth across these number of different countries um, and the complexity of the relationships with China. So I was wondering if we could delve a little bit more into the links, in some ways, over time, some of the legacies of the history, the, the things that happened before now, when the politics maybe were different, when the trade uh, goals were different, um what are some of the legacies of the longer history than we might realize between China and various Latin American countries that are actually very much still entwined with politics and relations today? Are there maybe a few particular examples you could tell us about?
0: Um, I think that it's, it's the shape of, of trade patterns, right, which are reasserting themselves. Remember, trade patterns have been, first and foremost, north-south, um, dominated by Europe and, and then the United States, <clears throat> since in the in the late nineteenth and well, in the um, formative years, uh, but uh, continuing into the twentieth century. But at the same time, uh, what was, Latin America was positioned in between European markets as a provider of, of um, goods. Uh, commodities, fundamental commodities in exchange for finished goods that came out of, of um, Asia, China in particular. So, so that, that kind of triangular uh, relationship in commercial terms uh, is replicated today. Obviously, there are details in certain sectors and it's different and all of those kinds of things, and yet it just, it just sort of knocks you back when you look at the, the, the basic uh, pattern and, and see that um, in, at, at play. Um, I think that the um, uh, technology transfer is a, an aspiration and a goal. Indeed, there were efforts even as far back as um, uh, the uh, 1700s to try to uh, wrest some of, the, uh, of that trade away from uh, China and Asia, or Europe for that matter, but China and Asia in particular, um, and uh, develop their own localized silk industry in Mexico. And uh, this was uh, this effort on the part that's the sort of agency dimension of of, uh, local um, actors in this uh, in within uh, Mexico. Um, But those kinds of things were were, um, they did in the end they didn't work. The other element might be the communities themselves, the communities that are that have sprung up in the wake of the 19th century migration were uh, uh, they themselves had a they were, of course, known, particularly in, in Lima and uh, Peru and the like as, as integrated into society. But uh, at the same time, they had a kind of sense of isolation from, from uh, the China of their grandparents, grandparents and so on. <clears throat> What's happened today is we, we've seen China, which has an explicit policy for mobilizing the diaspora, right? Uh, reaching out to these communities they the, they and, and reinvigorating with a sense of pride of who who they are and and, and the like as their connection with with China and uh, that becomes one of the points of, of contact of local knowledge exchange, sometimes commercial exchange and the like so these these I think are some of those elements uh, that that carry over from the past into the present day.
2: I will add to that, and I think Chris is absolutely right. Perhaps more contemporary issues, the U.S. view of China has, I believe I believe, has permeated the the region uh, for a long time, and I believe you know that that started changing in 1979 when when the Carter administration recognized the PRC. We see a number of countries doing the same afterwards. In other words, Latin American countries have been traditionally looking up to Washington to to read what what happens with the external world, and I think that's that's a very important um, element. And as Chris mentioned, the connection with uh, many people who are from Chinese descent in in the region in Pe- Peru is a very interesting case. And Chris and I actually wrote an edition on Peruvian Chinese foreign policy, um, which highlights the importance of of these communities um, in in these particular countries, which in many cases have not been integrated into the political uh, elites. Most of them are economic business elites, but not necessarily into the decision making. And one of the recommendations we were giving the Peruvians was to incorporate a lot of uh, Peruvian Chinese um, citizens to their foreign service, for example, because a lot of them already speak the language, they, are, um, they they have the experience and the knowledge to deal to deal with China, and that's also the case in other countries such as Panama, quite an important element. But in all of this, I would argue still the the way that countries look at the issue of Taiwan, which I think is still influenced by by the U.S. And when we saw a number of countries in Latin America from two thousand and seventeen onwards switching to taiwan the us reacted uh, pompeo went to panama to tell countries off of not doing so but of course countries were not very happy with that because you know countries are you know allowed to decide who do they want to have diplomatic ties with so there's a rejection and change of dynamics with the us which i think is one of the themes that we're going to be discussing later
1: Thank you both for um, highlighting some of those aspects. Uh, I admit I knew about the uh, community in Peru, and it makes a lot of sense, that recommendation, particularly given the difficulty of learning languages. Um, but I was surprised to learn in the book about the substantial community in Panama, and particularly, uh, for example, like some of the food being uh, very much Uh, derived from are very similar to uh, Chinese food. So I think that's a really important um, point to make. Um, Before we move on to talking about some of the countries in particular, I was wondering if there's anything in addition uh, about the Cold War era in particular we want to mention? I know we've sort of talked a bit about it already, but anything else we want to say?
2: I I think to, to, to add perhaps uh, some of to emphasize the importance of some of these issues but also to understand how chinese policymakers started to understand how the, the ties with the, the US for latin americans were not that strong 1958 vice president nixon went to peru and he went to a, 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 a group, he went to the university local university in in lima and vice president nixon thought students there from the left were there to to welcome him and to later realize that they were protesting against him. China has been aware of this relationship with, with the U.S., and they have been aware about how weak the relationship is. And I think, you know, this is a point that policymakers in China have, in many ways, uh, capitalized on, uh, because their new actor in the region New in the sense versus the U.S. as we know, they're not that new. But diplomatically, uh, they they know that the U.S. has a lot of dirty laundry in the region, and for that reason, they 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 capitalize on this in the sense that they don't have that much of that. But also, they only have to be marginally better than the U.S. to be you know seen as a different, more benign actor.
0: And, and I think too that this influenced this drive for an alternative. That there is a, uh, it, it, I mean, it's a kind of classic balance of power type politics, I suppose, that or logic that that derives here. That you're <clears throat> you are um, looking for an uh, an alternative uh, source of of influence, power, of resources, what have you, and that China slots in with that quite well, um, uh, and uh, particularly given the developmental emphasis. So much more so than say uh, some of the European countries would at this uh, equivalent period. So I think that this is that this and the sense that China is cast as the future, and that that the United States and the West more generally is seen to be uh, in decline. So that also for developing countries which are emphasizing progress, they're trying to move forward into a better tomorrow. China seems to have. Captured that better tomorrow. That's at least how the rhetoric reads, and, and, and indeed some of the some of the the economic statistics bear that out as well.
1: One of the important things, Chris, about that answer is not just what you actually said, but how you phrased it, that putting the agency emphasis on the Latin American countries looking for this from China. They want this. And I think too often it's easy to think of everything is about what China wants. And of course, that's part of the equation. um, But that's not the only thing that determines how these relationships develop, as evidenced in the book, when uh, you both compare the policies of Chile, Peru, and Argentina and look at the strategic choices that these countries are making in what they're trying to do with their relationships with China. So I was wondering if you could maybe do a little bit of compare and contrast for us between these countries and the choices they're making.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The relationship is not just about China. Can you can you hear me? I think this is absolutely right the relationship is not just about china you have different stories different strategies and well there, there are a number of issues that are difficult for the region the the, the, the clarity of china is much better than the clarity of the, the 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 region with latin america partly because we have very short-term mentality in latin america Therefore, it's difficult for the region to to form a clear strategy for the long term versus China, who has that obvious advantage. But also, also I think there are good lessons to learn. Chile has been a country that has uh, developed a good relationship with with China, but also strategically has had opportunities to enforce its agency, to impact with its agency. For example, their support for China to enter the WTO, you know, was exceptional and very, very important. And the way they have also managed to enter markets in in China, the market with their wines and not just focusing on natural resources. Because one of the problems, and I think these three cases that you mentioned, is the fact that the the most important thing they trade with China is natural resources. In the case of Peru and Chile, of course, of course, copper, but it is important to highlight the the, the advantage and the, the good uh, elements of that relationship. That it, they're not just simply about natural resources, and I think Chile would be a very good example.
0: I think too, in a way, Chile had the, the first mover advantage, and they jumped. Uh, you know, they retained under Allende. they had actually recognized. Uh, china formally uh, uh but they retain that even during it shows a level of pragmatism even in the, in the grip of, of military rule uh they retain that and pragmatism on both sides most countries uh, of uh the socialist uh, uh left or what have you would um um cut ties with um uh the the pinochet regime but they but beijing and um uh, Chile, Santiago carried on in that way. Um, this first mover advantage w- was an important way for them to position themselves. Peru, in a way, comes in later, right? And it's a, it's almost a, a late mover advantage. They could do things with China because it's its uh, resources. They had the examples of other countries, in particular, uh, the rivalry that is traditional between Peru and, and Chile. They, they, they could look over their shoulder and see what Chile had done, and they could uh, they could then uh, craft, for instance, an FTA, a, f- a free trade agreement, which was more, which resonated more closely with contemporary economic ties and also with with um, their own experience and and, and needs. Um, something that Chile had to uh, readjust a little bit later. So there is uh, there is that element for for Argentina. Um, i mean in a sense the 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 absence of a pol- of of a clear policy uh presides as opposed to peru and and, and chile that their the cycles of of uh, political change dominate within the country uh dominated how they approach china and so they they certainly saw the opportunity with opportunism there but at the same time that that relationship was shaped by the, the swings and falls of of uh, the currency, the crises that are were so, associated with that, and yet the interesting thing is, throughout uh, uh, there was this level of confidence building between China, uh, Argentine elites and their Chinese counterparts, such that the relationship has, has assumed over twenty some years then a very uh, of the contemporary relationship. It's been uh, it's become a quite a a lodestar. It's been quite a an important one for for China. Um, and the, the fact that uh, Argentina is now being considered to be a, a, for the BRICS is a arrangement. The Brazil, Russia, um, uh, India, China, South Africa uh, grouping is, is a testimonial to the positive uh, relationships that they've been able to develop with China over time.
2: Absolutely. I think Chris is absolutely right on this. But just to also add that after Cuba, The countries that follow establishing diplomatic ties are Chile in 1970, then you have Peru in 1971, then you have Mexico in 1972, Argentina also in 1972. Basically these are early movers diplomatically but I think strategically that, that came a little bit a little bit later. And, and Chris is absolutely right in that sense. Uh, the changes of dynamics in the region and as he mentioned, the new development bank, the BRICS Bank which is based in Shanghai, has it's expanded. So now you have not only five members, the founding members, but you have at the moment four additional members. One of them from Latin America, that's Uri which is in the process of, of completing its membership and argentina is trying to become a member and um, you know we'll see we'll see if that actually happens in the next year so, but china has been willing to to support that bid from argentina
1: i think that's such an interesting um, grouping of countries to put together for exactly the factors um that you've both just mentioned um and in some ways it was kind of an interesting group to start with, because at least from my perspective as more of a, knowing more about China than Latin America, I didn't really think of them together the way that I think of this next group of countries as probably having some sort of similarity, which is, of course, the Bolivarian Republic so of Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia. Um, I wasn't hugely surprised to see them grouped together made sense to me, at least from what I know of their policies and history, I was more surprised and, to be honest, a bit amused to um, read in the book the description from the both of you that China has sometimes been wary of or surprised by and sometimes even concerned about its relationship with these three countries. Um and I was very much persuaded uh, of this interpretation after reading the chapter. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about China's reaction to these three relationships.
0: I think it starts with with uh, Hugo Chavez's uh, trip to to um, uh, reaching out to and his trip to Beijing, where where he launches into a, a sort of celebratory, you know, we Mao of, of Mao himself and clearly unaware that, uh, the Deng Xiaoping era and, and the like has been really about opening up the, the, the door of criticism. Of course, today, Xi Jinping is bringing some of that celebratory, uh, uh, position back. But, but in that period, uh, it was something that they didn't expect. They didn't see that as a, you know, they, they themselves didn't recognize the power of, of the politics of the past, the left and, and the like. And, uh, uh it, it, uh, you know, we see in similar ways, uh, that language appearing in, in, um, Bolivia, uh, to a lesser degree with Ecuador because, uh, Correa was, was, a, an economist by training and he, he, though willing to use that language, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, he had a different uh, approach, but nonetheless, this, this open, open arm, uh, 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 uh rhetoric, uh, translated into for. Particularly for Venezuela uh, and and uh, the the but the, those are the other two countries as well a a willingness to to open um, policy doors uh, uh, license uh, encourage licenses uh, risk. Uh, you know, investments in areas that might not have otherwise been accessible to China. So I think that they were were taken aback by that, and they were uncertain how to respond to it. You know, favorably, but you know, their their own personal history of, of an understanding during the Deng Xiaoping uh, Jin, Zemin, Jin Zemin period was, you know, this was about turning your back on the on the policies of Mao. So it, it, it caught them uh, caught them at a. Uh, off off guard.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a very good point that Chris mentions. Um, I think the argument also includes the fact that there are, there are massive debts from this country to China. And my understanding from policymakers we've spoken, uh, China is worried about getting that money back, naturally. And I think the case of Venezuela should be highlighted there, where a lot of the debt that is owed to China was not necessarily approved by, by Parliament, by Congress in, in Venezuela. So it's a debt that could be perfectly well be dismissed by a new government in case, obviously, that government may may arrive, which, of course, we saw that with Guaido, sort of the alternative president of Venezuela. Um, and there they, they were reports that actually Guaido from Venezuela met with policymakers from China. Now, these are reports uh, that you know difficult to confirm, but reliable people were reporting about this in in you know in, in different circles, which tells me and tells us uh, that China is worried about that and that they would like to continue a relationship with Venezuela, and I think that is geared to the fact that China wants its money back uh, from the money that they lend uh, right. Venezuela. Also, to add here, uh, countries like Venezuela and Bolivia have proved to be a little bit more complicated to deal with China. For example, both of these countries pledged to join the AIB a very long time ago and with very ambitious memberships. They haven't done it. And um, I think, given the current circumstances, I think it would be quite difficult for them to complete that membership. So I think they're proving to be less reliable, perhaps, than, than, than other countries. In the case of Ecuador, I think it's very different. You're moving forward. You have uh, presidents who have given a lot of importance to China, some of them quite controversial because China invested in many different projects in, in the country, some of which have you know, phenomenally failed. Uh, and So that's very, very difficult. But the last, the last president that we have now, um, President Lazo, is right now actually about to sign an FDA that has concluded being negotiated between Beijing and, 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 and Quito uh, in a space of 11 months. So we should expect to have a new FTA that will be the fourth FTA of China with countries in the region, starting with Chile, then Peru, Costa Rica, and I believe uh, Ecuador soon to be the case.
1: Great. Great. Thank you for explaining that, Um, where it came from, Chris, and then what it's doing now, Alvaro, and even where it might go into the future. Um, Very helpful uh, understanding of that set of relationships. Um, So moving then northwards, uh, I would love to pick up on something one of you mentioned earlier, the idea of the Caribbean being a particular area for U.S. influence um, how then and why does China work to build relationships in this part of Latin America, given the kind of, I suppose, extra trickiness of it in some senses?
2: That's a that's a very good way of putting it. I think it's because China wants to send a message that they are not afraid to get involved with countries in the Caribbean, um, and I think that is a sort of a, a, an important message to the U.S. You see, when Xi Jinping went to the the region for the first time, he actually the first country in which he actually visited was Trinidad and Tobago. Then he went, that's in 2013, right after he had been, you know, uh, arrived to to power in, in, in China. Trinidad and Tobago, then he went to Costa Rica and Mexico. Then... He actually went to the U.S. So I'm saying this for the following reason. We experienced at that particular time the U.S. pivot to Asia by Obama. And I think the message here was you can mess with my orbit from China. Uh, We can also mess with yours. And I think that's an important element in, in the Caribbean. But also the depth. You go back. Cuba was the first country to establish diplomatic ties. But also... China luring a lot of these countries to also switch ties, such as the Dominican Republic in 2018, and 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 so on. So I think that's that's an important an important element to take into account just to finish, although the U.S. is a very important actor in this, these particular countries, there is also the massive element of neglect, meaning the U.S. doesn't really necessarily give any priority uh, to the region. And I think we will discuss this question later. But I think that's part of the reason why China sees an opportunity here uh, by a number of countries that you know will be open to to be closer to them for that reason.
0: Yeah, I think that that um, this uh, diplomatic complacency that characterizes the U.S. role for, to a region which uh, historically and in contemporary terms is recognized to be uh, important secu- uh, for the security of the United States if, you know, it, it's uh, in, in a longer-term sort of view, um, that that it's quite remarkable the degree to which China has been able to um, operate in there, and it, it speaks as well to the the um, the complacency of the U.S. the the the, the buying of uh, buying into the idea that that China is is an economic actor first and foremost. Again, part of that complacency is because domestically, the the growing ties and commercial links with the U.S. and China was this was the period when we began to see it. It was built upon that period, and so it would be that you know as as americans uh, you, uh people in the u s became more uncomfortable with and called called into question um that bilateral relationship, they began to look anew at Central america and the and the islands of the caribbean and and where china's positioning there but uh, up till that time they were you know they were they didn't see it they, they it was standing in front of them but they didn't see it that way
1: Hmm. So then getting to the point that Alvaro um, hinted at a little bit, uh, could you both tell us maybe even up to sort of now how the U.S. is reacting to China's engagement in the Caribbean but also in Latin America more broadly?
2: Of course, yeah, happy to do that. Well, Let me just start by saying that the U.S. has neglected the region massively. I think one of the things Latin Americans feel unhappy about uh, with the U.S. is the fact that we feel that, and I'm Latin American, by the way, I'm from Colombia, that the U.S. see us as their backyard. Therefore, it has never been a priority. This is way before China started interacting with the region, so it's important to to, to argue that and to highlight that. Now, one of the things that we actually see in, in, in more recent times is still the same neglect. I think Washington takes for granted that we are close to them, and as Chris hinted as well, they only see China's presence in the region as an economic factor. Speaking with with a former uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for the region, there is a bureau called Western Hemisphere Affairs in, in the State Department. I was asking him about China's presence in Latin America, and this is in 2014, and his answer was, "This is good for the U.S. because that means more money from China than uh, Latin Americans will spend in the U.S., which is not the case." It's sort of really arrogant uh, attitude from from their their part and neglect. And to finish with this, she has visited more countries than Trump. Obama, Trump, and Biden combined, imagine that. Thirteen countries in total, which highlights the the, the the low priority that the US gives the region. And probably that will continue for for, for many, many decades. I don't think that's gonna change. Then you have a new China that, that that is willing to be there, that is willing to interact with the region. And I think that takes that that that, that is very seen as a very positive element by Latin American countries.
1: Anything you'd like to add, Chris?
0: I I think that uh, the diplomatic dimension is is not recognized, uh, how for sitting leaders in office, uh, they gain a level of legitimacy and prestige from international interaction, particularly with a great power. And uh, if that great power is is China and lavishing on the, the, the attention and the like, this um, you know, is welcomed. It 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 helps them bolster their own position within amongst their their domestic populations and and the like, and and give them a way to overshadow their their um, political opponents. Uh, so I think these things matter. I think that uh, also we we uh, touched. We can touch on Panama, um, perhaps as one of those turning points because Panama historically had, of course, been a uh, the canal was U.S. possession, and uh, uh, and uh, was indicative of the, the blending of commercial power and um, military uh, ascendancy in the U.S. from the early 20th century onward. And the fact that uh, that the um, China was involved as a, out of Hong Kong initially, um, commercial actors in that way. Uh, but eventually, uh, in the diplomatic d- domain as well, uh, in 2017, um, that this uh, that this demonstrated to people in Washington that uh, there, this was a sort of wake up call for people in Washington that the the world of of uh, Latin America as they had understood it was changing and turning very very much uh, towards an, uh, an alternative and uh, that that uh, inspired some of the um, uh, hand-wringing that we saw uh, and Pompeo's visit, those sort of things.
2: Yeah, I think Chris is, is right on pointing to the example of Panama and how Panama in many ways reopened the door to establish ties with uh, Beijing rather than uh, to leave Taipei to establish ties with, with Beijing. And we saw a number of countries that follow, including the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, and, and, and the last one was, was Nicaragua. They, Chinese were not that excited with Nicaragua because the Nicaraguans had already switched from Taiwan to, um, to Beijing in 1985 and then went back afterwards, five years later. So then, therefore, you know, th- there is not a you know, great deal of celebration in China. But that brings the number to 25 countries, which brings me to the next point, which is, I mentioned before, Taiwan. And this is important for the U.S. Taiwan only has 14 countries that recognize their status, right? Out of those four countries, one is is the Vatican, so you might not necessarily count them as a a country. But the important here, the magic number, is Latin America. Out of the 14 countries that um, recognize Taiwan, Eight, Miranda, eight are in Latin America. That's that's a very important element. It still has uh, an important voice. And, And we believe that that number will become smaller. Um, in in many aspects. We don't know who it is. People oftentimes ask us who is going to be the next country switching diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China. Uh, And we don't know. Uh, But there are elements highlighting that domestic politics in these countries matter. Um, The election in Paraguay in April is important. Paraguay is the only country in South America that still has diplomatic ties with uh, Taiwan. And the issue of recognizing Taiwan or China is now part of the election uh, because the current president wants to stay with Taiwan. In fact, he went to Taiwan last week. And the contenders are all arguing that they want to switch their country to, to China. So we'll see what happens. But it's interesting to see these dynamics now playing an important part and will continue to do so for the next few years, I believe.
0: Can I jump in on a, a, a point, Miranda? Just uh, more generally, which is um, <clears throat> part of the we're part of the um, relationship. Uh, and this isn't a Central America. This is the the whole of the continent. Just um, that we need to 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 put up front is uh, how fast trade has grown in in uh, uh, a period of of, of um, less than twenty years. Trade has gone from twelve. Point one seven billion to three hundred over three hundred and seven billion, and uh, this is just shows how there was a, there were markets across the continent that were not really being uh, developed as much as they could be, and that this this um, that China's resources, particularly its uh, the lending policy or its infrastructure for resources loan, based loans, um, were of great appeal to the different economies. And that's true for small countries, island country like Jamaica, and it's true for larger countries like Brazil, that in both cases, that they they, uh, saw in China an economic partner whose resources could be channeled to respond to and solve problems that they had, be it uh, upgrading uh, a, a road across the island, which was the case in Jamaica or um, more investment into uh, extractive mining or or, um, resources in in the the Northeast. So this this general economic dimension has helped uh, um, lubricate the relationship, which the diplomatic relationship as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very important to, to mention and that uh, impressive figures, which go back to China accessing the WTO in 2001. That's partly one of the, the factors explaining this, this massive trade and the FTAs and so on and the new FTAs that we may see. In the future, perhaps uh, also um, Uruguay, including Uruguay, which is a country that is part of Mercosur, it's not allowed to negotiate bilateral FTAs, but they're doing so because there is an important economic benefit. China is the largest trading partner of Uruguay, Brazil, Peru, and Chile. They are the largest trading partner of South America as a whole the us is, still has an important monopoly on that but i think the us changing um, as we speak uh, ground um, in 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 the region trade wise but i also think soft power wise and i think the policymakers and perhaps experts in in washington are starting to wake up to that reality that you know what are the implications for this and and i think that's an important element to to mention, including elements that I see geopolitically oriented, such as the membership of six countries in the region of the AIB, which, as you may know, the AIB is seen as a political tool by the Chinese to take over the financial infrastructure of the world in the sense of the, 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 the replacement of the World Bank. In fact, they, they, one of the, the fears when the bank was established was that the AIB was going to make the World Bank um, sort of put the, put it in danger. Now they're working together, but six countries from the region are members of this particular infrastructure bank. I,
0: I think, too, that, the, that, that uh, one of the... If, if Panama was a kind of geopolitical turning point that the that uh, the free trade of the Americas, the failure of the US-led free trade of the Americas was a, a kind of economic turning point back in 2005, and that that was the point at which, you know, it was uh, that we see an acceleration of Chinese investment in aggregate form. There had been Chinese interest and economic involvement as, of course, preceding that, but, but we see a more comprehensive approach uh, and we see the, the, the free trade areas beginning uh, agreements being um, struck uh, as as uh, the United States started to do as a follow up to this failure of the, the uh, free trade of the Ameri- area of the Americas uh, signing on to bilateral trade free trade agreements. So I think that these these sort of touchstones are the are the the points where we see the relationship accelerate uh, and, and uh, or change.
1: Well, now that you've both explained to us um, the historical ties between China and Latin America, Um, some of the more contemporary legacies that are still relevant Uh, and of course now in this last answer you've predicted the future or at least predicted what we should look out for in the future in these multiple different relationships. Uh, This leads me to ask only my final question which is there anything that we as listeners can look out for in the future from either or of you? Um, Anything you're currently working on or looking to work on next uh, whether or not it's related to this topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of?
2: Yes, of course. Um, Chris and I are working on, on specific cases at the moment, which again is very important to 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 highlight uh, that you know the diversity of very different countries in the region. We're working on, on China and Ecuador at the moment, China and Panama as well, China and Colombia, looking at the specifics of these particular cases, and we will continue to do so. Uh, we also look at the interactions of the development banks from China into the region. The new development bank specifically, we're working on Project at the moment, an article that will coming out will be coming out uh, soon, and also the interaction of the AIB and working on and issues of uh, sustainability and projects that they might have in the future.
0: Yes, I, I just agree with <laughs> Alvaro on those points.
1: <laughs> Anything either of you are working on individually you'd like to highlight?
2: Yes, um, I'm. I'm working. I'm looking at uh, at the moment on um, the the work on the NDB that we're doing is is, is not together. Um, I am working on the expansion of the of the NDB specifically in Uruguay and how that would be a very important element for the future because it may open the door for Argentina and other countries to to join. Uh, while I'm doing that, of course, highlighting the, the, the role of Brazilian agency in the whole process and the developments that we have seen in the last you know year or so with the comeback of Lula, the fact that he has replaced the president of the New Development Bank with a Brazilian former uh, president, uh, Dilma Rousseff, so this is the sort of things that I'm looking at the moment to see that expansion in in terms of cooperation and in terms of membership with countries in the region. Chris,
0: yeah, I think uh, I think an area that that it bears uh, examining would be the security area because how it manifests it doesn't manifest in the way that we've seen in, in for instance, China Africa, uh, but there are risk and security. Uh, challenges that, as seen through, uh, as seen by China and uh, in the region, uh, um, and how they address those. So, I think that's something in the future that, that uh, I might be pursuing.
2: Absolutely, that's a very important element. We we have done some work on that, uh, examining the implications for countries like France of China's presence in the Caribbean. Why? Because France has two very important departments uh, in. Um, elements of territory uh, French Guiana and Guadalupe and the French have a very important contingency and military presence in the Caribbean 3100 soldiers in total military personnel the US doesn't have a base in Latin America, the Southcom command that, um, that used to be based in Panama, now is based out of Miami. (laughs) So that's an important element to take into account and more developments that are happening in that particular security area. Chris is absolutely right.
1: So lots of fascinating things then to look forward to. Thank you both for sharing those. Um, But while you're off working on them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again titled China and Latin America Development Agency Geopolitics, uh, published by Bloomsbury. Chris and Alvaro, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you
2: so much for the invitation.